0: Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Often at the beginning of the year, we look back on the previous year with respect, curiosity, and sometimes loathing to see what happened in the world of science. But as we cruise into year two of a global pandemic, we kind of know what big stories transfix the world. There were stories of triumph, of effective, safe vaccines developed faster than ever before, and tragedy, of political division, anti-vax campaigns, and violence against nation states and people of color. The past few years have rocked science and society to its core, making people question what scientists are capable of and where they need to improve. So we wanted to not look back, but look forward to see what science might have in store for us, for good and for bad. So we gathered five fantastic science journalists and asked, what's coming up next year, and what have all of the big changes over the past few years wrought. First up, we have Marin McKenna, a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University, a senior writer at Wired Magazine, and the author of books including Big Chicken, Superbug, and Beating Back the Devil. She's a scary disease person and a friend of the show, and we wouldn't have her any other way. Welcome, Marin.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: So first, I- do feel like we need to, to talk about COVID a little bit, because the pandemic's not over. Um, now in the United States, we're on third shots for many adults and shots for kids, as we are discussing this in November. And of course, this is only against COVID. And we might need more shots for variants, for new coronaviruses. And you've actually written a story about the idea of a universal coronavirus vaccine. And I wondered if you could talk about what that involves? I mean, is that a promise? Or is that a hope?
1: (laughs) That's an interesting question. So to set the stage, COVID is not the only genetically variable, fast-moving viral disease that we deal with as a species or a population. It's just the one that's kind of occupied most of our attention for the past two years. But there's also flu, for instance, another highly variable viral disease for which we have to vaccinate frequently. And for decades now, scientists have been wondering whether we could achieve a universal flu vaccine so that we only had to take it maybe once or a few times in childhood, and then maybe a booster every 10 years or so instead of every single year as flu mutates. And that search, which hasn't been successful yet, has inspired a search for a universal coronavirus vaccine. This would be a vaccine, again, that we'd take one or two times and maybe get boosted for. That would protect us against this current coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, the viral cause of COVID. That would protect us against its variants, both current and any to emerge. And ideally, and maybe most importantly, protect us against any other nasty things that the coronavirus family would toss up at us in years to come, which is a real concern. Because let's remember what we're dealing with right now is SARS-CoV-2. There was the original SARS in 2003 that was a pandemic that hit some two dozen countries, sickened thousands of people before burning itself out. And there was and continues to be the MERS coronavirus that emerged in 2012. That's a different genus within the coronavirus family. So, if we could work out a vaccine that could anticipate and deal with those kind of eruptions as well, we'd be in really good shape. The problem with a universal coronavirus vaccine, which is sort of the problem that the people looking for a universal flu vaccine have run into, is that the part of a virus that our immune system wants to react to to create protection for us often turns out to be the part of the virus that changes the most from genus to genus or sub-genus grouping, or from strain to strain year to year with flu. And what we need to make a universal vaccine is to figure out how to present to the immune system the part of the virus that doesn't change very much year to year, understanding that that part might not be a part that really generates a strong immune response. So since about March of of 2021, this year that we are in endlessly, there have been a pretty significant number of papers and preprints of people working on this problem, trying to figure out how do you create durable immunity to not just one virus, but one grouping of viruses, one genus of viruses, if not the whole family of viruses. And though everything is still very preliminary, there's enough interest in enough work going on that it seems like it's not an entirely futile pursuit.
0: And I also wanted to ask about some of the side effects of COVID that have often seemed to fly under the radar. And I'm not talking about long COVID. Um, I'm talking about hospital acquired infections, which seem like they wouldn't necessarily go with COVID because COVID is a virus. It wouldn't seem like you'd have to worry about bacteria, but you do. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk about how COVID has affected hospital-acquired infections, especially the ones that are
1: antibiotic-resistant. This is really a problem. So it's kind of vanished from the public discourse right now, again, because of COVID, because it's completely swamped our attention. But if you went back about 10 years or maybe even 15 years There was a lot of concern in public health and in healthcare in the United States about the infections that people get as a result of being in hospitals. These are pathogens that are spread by lingering on people's skin, like MRSA, drug-resistant staph, or by lurking on cold, inorganic surfaces like some fungi and some gut bacteria. And they get passed around because hospital infection prevention is almost never absolutely perfect because people are not perfect actors. They get tired and they make mistakes. And that getting tired and making mistakes, that has really increased in COVID. I think all of us remember from the first year of the pandemic that there were all these scenes of ICUs being incredibly crowded, of healthcare workers being unbelievably overworked and of personal protective equipment. Being in short supply, so that things like masks and gowns and gloves had to be reused, or, or sometimes there wasn't time to change them out if there were actually spares lying around. So all of that together hospital crowding, healthcare workers being vastly overworked, and also people being in ICUs for COVID, which because of the conditions of ICUs, automatically makes them more vulnerable to infections because they're pierced by catheters, they're getting lots of drugs, their immune system is already in a depressed state. All of that has led to an upwelling in hospital-acquired infections. In a paper that was published in the middle of this year, Researchers at the CDC estimated that COVID erased five years of gains in reducing hospital infections were effectively back where we were in 2015. And because these are very stubborn infections, often very virulent, often antibiotic resistant when they're bacterial or resistant to existing drugs when they're fungal, um, this is really bad news.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems important to note that a lot of these hospital-acquired infections are bacteria and that those bacteria can be antibiotic-resistant. And that's not to say that they all are, but some of them can be.
1: Um, Yeah, it's true that some of the infections that we think of as being hospital-acquired infections, like staph, for instance, which is a bacterium that just hangs out on our skin all the time and then takes advantage of a cut or a break in our skin. even kind of common, ordinary staff that is drug sensitive is a very serious infection if it gets inside your body. Drug-resistant staff, MRSA, is even more so. But the fact that an infection is not drug-resistant doesn't mean it's not a big deal. Right. Um,
0: but you did note that there were drug-resistant fungal infections. And I think when most of us think of fungal infections, we think of like athlete's foot Um, But that's not what we're talking about. And I was wondering if you could talk about fungal infections. And I I know you've kind of raised the alarm about these, about kind of the potential future of like fungal resistance.
1: So there's a particular um, fungal pathogen that has been spreading in hospitals I think its very first sighting was back in 2009 on the other side of the world in Asia but I think I wrote my first story about it in 2016. Uh, it's called Candida auris. So Candida is is a yeast and uh, auris actually refers to the ear because the very first person in whom it was found it was an ear infection an, an sort of ear canal infection in a patient in I think Japan. And people who deal with the kind of fungi that infect humans, have been watching this yeast with just a horror as it advanced across the globe, because there aren't very many drugs to treat fungi to begin with, compared to the number of drugs we have to treat viruses or bacteria. There are really only three, maybe now four classes, and this yeast, Candida auris, is resistant to most of them. So, that's bad to begin with. But the second thing that's extremely odd is that it doesn't behave like a fungus. It doesn't behave like a yeast. It passes from person to person, and it hangs out not just in the warm, damp, salty parts of your body the way athlete's foot does, but also has gained the ability to live quite happily on cold, inorganic surfaces like the rails of a bed, the door of a room, the the um, the tubing on a stethoscope, something like that. So it's become a really formidable opponent in hospitals and a particular infector of people who are already quite ill and have diminished immune systems. And in addition to being by itself a really bad actor, Candida auris really also kind of stands for the way that as a society, and as a sort of medical establishment, we really don't pay very much attention to fungi. We think of them as a thing that affects plants or a thing that maybe affects animals. Um, people in agriculture, and to a lesser extent, people who grow food animals, have always taken great note of fungi, have always understood them as a profound threat. And in human medicine and public health, we've kind of missed that. And Just now, in the past couple of years, with the advance of a whole array of fungal pathogens, not just Candida auris, we're really beginning to understand that we made a mistake, (laughs) that that fungi are much more potent a threat than we understood. and We need to catch up, particularly in developing new drugs to, to beat back fungal infections because they are gaining a march on us.
0: So I actually wanted to follow up on that, because I know, I think you and I have spoken about this before, like, there's not, there's been some issues with research pipelines and developing things like new antibiotics, because a lot of times the, the kind of, Profits and stuff aren't really there, um, you know, for drug development. I mean, has there been kind of stepped up research on antibiotics and antifungals to kind of go with the fact that we're recognizing these threats?
1: Uh, not yet. <laughs> it would okay. be nice if that were true. Yeah. So, so the the situations are loosely analogous. They're not exactly the same, but the the basic. Problem with antibiotics, as we've talked about before, is that all of the big legacy pharma companies that came into the 21st century from the mid 20th century, the big bloom of pharmacology after World War II all kind of figured out in fairly short order that it's not actually in their financial interest to make antibiotics. If you think about the last time you took an antibiotic, you probably only took it for a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so if you were unlucky. And when you were done, it made go away the thing that you were taking it for. It killed the infection without killing you. That is kind of unique in pharmacology. For the most part, most of the drugs that humans take are things that. Allow us to manage conditions, but don't make the conditions completely go away. If you think of like cardiovascular drugs or insulin for diabetes or any one of of the many drugs for sort of lifestyle associated diseases or even a lot of cancer drugs, there are things that moderate the condition, but don't make it 100% go away. If you make a drug that people have to keep taking because the condition has not entirely gone away, you are likely to garner much more profit from that than something that somebody takes for just a couple of weeks. And all the big pharma companies realized this within about a 10-year span and stopped making antibiotics. So now, Antibiotic manufacture is largely the province of small biotechs who are trying to get over the the gap between having a promising compound and being able to pay for developing that compound. The situation with antifungals is very similar. It's not exactly the same because there isn't that much use of antifungals in the outpatient setting, the very serious pathogens people get get treated in the hospital for. And so their course of treatment may be longer. In fact, in some cases, once you're infected with some of these pathogens, your course of treatment is very, very long. So there is there's longer treatment, a company will make more money off those drugs, but the patient population is smaller. In some ways, you can think of fungal infections as almost like an orphan disease. So even though the situations aren't exactly analogous, in both cases, the central problem is the same, which is that the the big companies that have a lot of capitalization don't have a lot of incentive to work on these drugs. And the small companies with the the earnest new young scientists who really think they see a solution don't have the cash.
0: I wish you could see the face that I'm making right now because I've realized I kind of have this face that I make when I kind of like confront the issues associated with like drug development in a capitalist society. <laughs> and I'm making that face really hard right now. But finally, uh, one of the things I love about your coverage in particular is that when you write about disease, you do not just write about disease in humans. You write about disease in animals. And as we have all come to learn in COVID, disease in animals has a lot to do with disease in humans. And you were writing about a new pandemic that has been spreading in 2021 in pigs, which People might be like, "Oh, pigs, whatever." But it's important. Uh, what I was wondering if you could talk about African swine fever and kind of—it is very important. What's going on, and, and how worried we should be? So, save my bacon, I think
1: Mary. We started. <laughs> I'm sorry. I. Have <laughs> so I think that COVID has kind of taught us to understand that. There is transmission between the animal kingdom and the human world, that there are infections that exist in animals of various kinds, whether they're livestock or or wildlife, that can cross over to us, what what, uh, someone who's a specialist in this would call zoonotic infections, and that we therefore need to care about policing the border between the human world and the animal world because of those infections that cross over. That is a good recognition, but we also need to pay attention to the fact that there are diseases in animals that we should care about, not because they directly threaten us in the sense of threatening our health, but, not because, they, but because they kill a lot of animals and also because they cause profound economic damage to the human world, whether they're making us sick or not, an African swine fever. Is a perfect example of that. This is not a new pathogen. In fact, it it, it marked its sort of like hundredth birthday since recognition in the fall of 2021. It was was first identified in Africa, hence its name. But it has been slowly moving out of Africa. First, actually got to uh, to Portugal in the Iberian Peninsula, and then was beaten back, and then got into the Caucasus and Russia, and was somewhat controlled, and then got to China the largest consumer and largest producer of pork on the planet. And in 2018 and 2019, it accounted for the deaths of an unbelievably high percentage of the Chinese pig herd. So that's bad. The worst thing is that African swine fever is now moving across the globe. And It is in the Western Hemisphere for the first time in about 40 years. It's been identified in the Dominican Republic. and The assumption is that it's probably also in Haiti, just across the border, though that's a little hard to tell right now. Haiti's public health is very disrupted. They had an earthquake. They had a political assassination. They have other things to deal with right now. African swine fever was in Haiti 40 years before and the response of the United States was to force Haiti to kill all of its pigs its entire pig herd. Ooh. So the existence of African swine fever in the western hemisphere particularly in the Caribbean is a really really big deal with a lot of historic memory associated with us. So what do we do? We are the thing about African swine fever it is is it is primarily transmitted by the animals themselves, living or dead, but it's also transmitted by pig meat, including meat that's been cooked or cured. In other words, ham.
0: Oh, wow. And the
1: very first movement of swine fever out of Africa to the Iberian Peninsula happened when an airline flight that came from sub-Saharan Africa to Lisbon tossed out its garbage, including sandwiches, at the end of a flight. Um, Some wild pigs got into the garbage in the airport's dump and then merrily spread the infection to the domestic pig herd in Portugal. There is a lot of porousness to our borders with regard to both official and especially unofficial transit of meat. Um, smuggled meat, stuff that people bring back in their suitcases from their families if they're visiting their families aboard, food waste. And there's also a really significant, like large scale business in smuggling meat in shipping containers that the USDA and Customs and Border Protection are completely inadequate to deal with. They haven't got the inspectors and the personnel. So there's a lot of nervousness right now in the United States about could African swine fever make that final jump from the Caribbean into the mainland and what would we do? The first thing we do is probably shut down all movement of pigs anywhere in the country. Just everything that's on the roads would freeze. And the second is they would try to figure out where it was and they would kill an awful lot of pigs to keep it from moving. So for me, African swine fever is both an immediate threat but it's also a really good reminder that when we are looking at the the potential hazard from diseases, we have to think really broadly. We can't think just about what affects us. We can't think just about the wildlife that might affect us or the insects that might affect us. We have to think about things that occur in the insect world or the animal world and are confined there because the effects of them are going to touch us one way or another.
0: You know, Maren, thank you so much for letting us know what we should be scared about because, like, yes, that kind of scares me, but, you know, Scared isn't great, but prepared is great. So thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like um, that formulation. So uh, thank you. Uh, it's nice to talk to you again.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Marin McKenna and her work, we've got information about her on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Diseases like COVID present existential threats to our lives. But they also bring aspects of our society into sharp relief. They make us question our behaviors, like why on earth we ever put on something that's not pajama pants. But they also show just how bad things like economic inequality have gotten and how scientists might be able to say what the public should do, like get a vaccine, but they can't make people do it. Scientists have been studying all of this. And so we've got Sujata Gupta, the social science writer at Science News Magazine, here to tell us what she's looking forward to in social science. Sujata, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: First, when I asked you what research you were looking forward to in 2022, you actually used a word that I didn't really think about, but which makes a lot of sense. And that word is demographics. And I was wondering if you could
2: talk about why you think demographics are going to be important. So demographics is kind of a subset of a subset in social sciences, um, and sort of ropes in sociology and psychology, even economics. Um, And it really just refers to where people are uh, in space, or at least that's the way I'm considering it. And so The big thing we keep hearing is that people, many people in the white collar workforce are no longer tethered to their workplace. And does that mean they will, they will move maybe into the suburbs, maybe into sort of places that offer a lifestyle choice, like near the mountains or near the ocean. And it's still pretty muddy. Like we don't know We get, we know that people are moving for the pandemic or they have moved for the pandemic. A lot of young people, 20 something moved in with their parents, for example, but we don't know if they'll stay where they are. Um, and so, a lot of the scholars who study sort of urban change, there's one camp that says, "Nope, people are going to stay in the cities. That's sort of where the creative class is, and that won't change. You know, you rub elbows with with all sorts of people in a city, and that creative energy is what draws people to cities. But there's another group that sort of says, "Hey, it looks like people are not necessarily leaving cities, but they're moving into the suburbs." And so really, Understanding the long-term demographic change um, has become a key question for for people who study those movements.
0: Well, and also at this point, just the phrase "rubbing elbows" sounds really unhygienic.
2: <laughs> yes, we, we've been scarred. <laughs> we probably should look at who's going back on the. Um, Subways, I mean, another big piece of this ties to climate change, where there was a Pew survey that came out uh, six months ago that um, asked people sort of how they want to live. And there was a return to a push for big houses. People want to have, as you can imagine, they want more land. They want more space for their home offices. (laughs) And it's a climate change nightmare because really to address climate change, we're better off with people packed into smaller spaces and using public transit and uh, not building infrastructure into remote places. And so I think there's a lot of sort of related questions to, well, if people live in certain places, what happens to the built environment?
0: That's a really interesting finding. I mean, I can't say that I'm surprised, but it's a really interesting finding that You know, people want more space and that they're, they're going to, and that's really bad for climate change because, uh, so yeah, you mentioned that, you know, climate change is impacting kind of people at a small scale, but also people at a global scale. You know, we've been, I feel like more and more people are kind of focusing within their own countries, but there is kind of a large scale economic impact of climate change. Um, what kind of impacts will we be looking for
2: uh yeah so at a global scale i think it's again a matter of really understanding who is affected by certain decisions so if you have um a group of people that live on the sea and they make a living by fishing but those fish populations are dying out scientists Anthropologists, sociologists, people working sort of in these overseas environments really need to understand those questions at scale. So, for instance, if you move a, that group of people inland, um, what does that do for their livelihood? Uh, I read a study that showed that in one situation, I think it was Sri Lanka, they did move people inland and it was just a mess like the the men ended up just leaving their families and going back to the sea to fish and big hotels came up where there was now this void of of people so they could come in and it it didn 't work at all and it was because they sort of failed to consider the um, both the problem at scale, like what people would do, but also across time. And so making this immediate decision to say you're going to have a better future 20 years from now really didn't work because people want their better future right here, right now. And so I think these questions get really complicated and it's just really a matter of understanding what the question is, who the who the key players are, and then really mapping what happens to these different groups under these different scenarios. And also probably there's an education piece, like, maybe this won't improve your well-being in the short run. But it might help your children's well-being 20 years from now. Um, Because the reality is that these are really tough choices. And we can't just tell people that, you know, if you move to this area, your life will automatically be better. Um, So I think I think the sort of looming climate change really presents a lot of challenges within communities um, and countries as to how to communicate about the challenges, how to convince people to take those challenges seriously, how to not put all the impetus for change on poor communities. Um, You know, these are all things we should be considering.
0: And somewhat linked to that, I wanted to talk about something that you mentioned specifically, um, that, you know, as kind of the onus is put on, you know, poor and minority communities, um, there has also been kind of this movement in the United States, for example, to defund the police, which really means reallocating police funds to other agencies like mental health or child protection. Um, and at the same time, we're also seeing media reports about rising violent crime. (laughs) Um, And I was wondering what social scientists are kind of looking for there. um, And what are you looking for as we kind of look to the future of things like police funding and crime?
2: Ooh, big question. Um, So yes, defund the police was a sort of, label that emerged out of the Black Lives Matter protests last summer. um, And it, it meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I basically have landed on the definition that you said, which is reallocating the vast amount of money we give to police and giving it to social, giving that money to social programs such as um, the most common one is having a mental health expert respond to a mental health call often in conjunction with police, but having them be the point of contact because they 're trained in dealing with such encounters that being said um it 's a really, really difficult space to understand uh, for many reasons: one, police are simply used to doing that job and it 's become part of their work. They may not want it, but it 's what they're you know what they have been tasked to do. Um, and also we don't, because the police have been tasked with those, you know, running that sort of service, we don't actually have enough social programs to meet the needs often. And so what we're seeing happen at sort of a local level is, uh, there's so much, there was, I don't know about, I'll get to now, but so there was a lot of pressure to take money from policing and putting it into these social programs. Uh, but people's, um, understanding of these questions are very short term, so, um, and, and also very binary police are bad, um, social programs are good or vice versa. If you fall on sort of the other end of the spectrum, none of those is real, you know, none of those is reality in truth. If we really want to defund the police, then we need to take dollars to not just put into those programs, but to create those programs. And that will take time. And so we, again, need to create timelines for how this can succeed, Um, But because people are so short-sighted, what we're seeing now is that there has been this uptick in the homicide rate. It is not clear from the evidence that is available whether that is related to efforts to defund the police or if it's another force altogether. And it might be both depending on where you are are looking. So I think that's an open question, one that I certainly would like to try to address, assuming the research is out there. Um, But the Other side of it is we can't say, oh, defund the police did not work because, again, we need to take sort of a longer look at it. We don't need to maybe the answer is not taking money from police departments right here, right now, but setting up a system so that gradually we can shift those services over to to other programs, other people more capable of dealing with those problems. But it's not going to happen overnight.
0: And finally, Um, I feel like we're covering a lot of topics here and a lot of very deep, important questions. Um, you're going to have to come back. Anyway, um, finally, COVID taught science writers and scientists something very important. You can put out information about a pandemic, but you cannot make people believe it. And I was wondering what, what have you found social scientists are kind of looking to do with that information? I feel like it kind of came as a shock to people and maybe it shouldn't have.
2: I think it came as a shock to social scientists even. Right at the start of the pandemic, I interviewed a, uh, an expert in pandemics, and he is himself a, a psychiatrist, I believe. And he said, in my book on pandemics, I did not factor in nearly enough the role that human, basic human behavior would play. Um, you know, there was sort of this sense of like, if we have the right scientific information, then people will simply abide by it. But there is such a divide in our country now between um, people who trust the science and people who do not. And unfortunately, the scientists are in the one camp and have a hard time communicating with that other camp. And so I, I do sense this divide between what social scientists are learning about human behavior, but then trying to apply it in a real life Scenario. So, for instance, we can see, um, you know, there's been all sorts of sort of correlational studies looking at what personality traits make it harder to follow social distancing or what political beliefs make you less likely to wear a mask or whatever. And so we can show that, you know, if you're if you're more extroverted, you have a harder time following social distancing, which may not have needed a study or, you know, uh, if you are conservative leaning then you probably or you might feel that masks aren't really a great way forward, or that they limit your freedom. Um, and so we know those things and social scientists have been able to map those that disconnect and beliefs. But really bridging those two communities has proven quite, quite challenging. So if you look at vaccine uptake, for instance, like the vaccines are amazing. They work really well. I'm not the person to talk about that, but they're great. Um And, you know, initially when the adult vaccines rolled out, everybody was rushing to get, like, not everybody, but a subset of people was rushing to get them. There were no appointments available. A few months later, though, we could start to see that certain communities weren't getting the shots um, for different reasons. Um, And again, that's part of understanding the audience. So there are your... um, black communities that maybe not, might not trust the medical infrastructure. And so reaching that that population requires one approach. There are your sort of conservative hardliners who don't think COVID is a real serious threat. And so that will require a wholly different approach. Um, so I would say social scientists, number one, are, are, are often just in a lab. So they're not tasked with implementing these changes. Um, but they are trying to communicate what they're finding, um, trying to communicate how different sorts of people gauge risk. Um, you know, if you're prone to anger, maybe recognize that in yourself. And, um, because anger makes you less likely to see threats as serious. So recognize that in yourself and maybe try to take the threat more seriously or vice versa. If you're a fearful sort of person, then you might, um, see the threat as greater than it really is. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Right now we're in a complicated place where there's just a mishmash of policies that don't always make sense. Your places that are most vaccinated have the most stringent policies to avoid the spread of COVID. Your places that are least vaccinated have the most lax policies. And I guess I really hope that scientists will start to understand how to communicate best practices and how to get people to then follow those best practices. But unfortunately, I don't really have the answer for how to how to make that happen.
0: Well, Sujata, even if you don't have the answer, thank you so much for being here. I think it's one thing that the past few years have taught us is that social science is more important than ever. It was always important. And now it's even more so. Agreed. Thanks so much, Bethany. We've got more information about Sujata Gupta and her writing at scienceforthepeople.ca. Over the past two years, we've certainly seen scientific advances burst onto the scene in a way that they never have before. mRNA vaccines, which most people had never heard of before 2020, have now been administered into people's arms. Scientific technology is not going to stop there. So we're talking with Jeffrey Perkel, the technology editor at Nature, about what's coming up in scientific technology that might be hugely important in the future. The whether it ends up in your arm is going to be up for debate. Welcome, Jeffrey.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: So when I asked you what you were excited about coming up in the next year, you specifically mentioned single cell transcriptomics and proteomics. And I think people are pretty familiar with like genomics like their genome but the transcriptome and the proteome are probably a little more foreign and i wondered if you could talk about what those are and what they tell us that is different
3: so the genome is uh just to remind everyone the genome is the full complement of dna in a cell and most people are familiar with that and how much work went into uh collecting it but the genome just tells the cell what it is capable of making the transcriptome is the collection of genes of transcripts that a cell actually produces which is a reflection of what kind of cell it is so neurons produce different express different genes than kidney cells for instance and the proteome is the full set of proteins that those transcripts create.
0: So it's kind of like each step of the central dogma.
3: Exactly. And there's others as well. Some people look at metabolites. So that would be like the metabolome and um and and lipids, the lipidome, and glycans, the glycome.
0: So I, I think of it like sometimes as like the genome is like your full car maintenance manual but the reality is you're never going to read the whole thing you're only going to like read the section pertaining to the bits on the dashboard that light up and that's the transcriptome and then the proteome is what you do about it
3: yeah that's an interesting way to look at it the the (laughs) analogy that's an interesting that's an interesting example the way i've usually thought of it is the genome is like a blueprint Mm -hmm. and the transcriptome is you know the genome is sort of like the architect's office, and then um, RNA polymerase, which creates which transcribes DNA into an RNA copy, sort of like sends out instructions on these RNAs that go- kind of go out to the people who actually have to build the building, and those are the transcripts, and the proteins are like the actual bricks that they're putting in the wall to build the thing in the blueprint.
0: That's probably more accurate. Um, But of course, we've learned about our genomes. And one of the things we've learned is that it's roughly the same in every cell, which is why you can take a swab from your cheek and send it to 23andMe, and they'll tell you who your great-grandfather slept with. But why is single-cell transcriptomics and proteomics so important? You talked about kind of the genome as the blueprint, why is why is it so important that we understand transcriptomics and proteomics at the single cell level?
3: So for much of the history of molecular biology, researchers have done, researchers did experiments using what's called bulk methods. So they would take a piece of tissue, a piece of skin, um, a collection of blood, and they would um analyze all of the nucleic acids in it all the dna all the rna all the or all the protein of that entire collection um and they learned quite a bit by doing that but the problem is that most tissues no tissues probably are uh is every cell the same they're at i mean if nothing else they're at different stages of the cell cycle. Some of them are exposed to different levels of oxygen. Um, there are also different kinds of cells in uh, in different tissues. So when you look at an entire tissue in bulk, what you're doing is sort of blurring, you're blurring the differences between those different cells. And um, it's impossible to know which kind of cell is contributing what to the behavior of a tissue by doing that. So a single cell method, single-cell methods are basically done by sort of disaggregating a tissue somehow into individual cells and processing each cell uh, uh, separately, uh, extracting its nucleic acids and proteins and analyzing them analyzing them individually so that you can basically say what does each individual cell in that tissue or that collection of cells anyway um, look like? How is it behaving? And in doing so, you can discover, um, for instance, new new kinds of cells that um, were sort of hidden when you look at the bulk level.
0: You know, that's really interesting because I think kind of the way we're taught about our body's tissues and our body systems is that like, yes, of course, you know, your cell in your like shin bone is going to to be different from the cell in like your kidney. But we probably think, for example, that like, all the cells like in the kidney are the same, and all the cells in the bone are the same. And they're not, they're not at all. And I mean, once you get down to you know, you start to realize that when you get into like, for example, the anatomy of the kidney, where there's like a whole set of like nephrons that all do different things. But it's it, it is kind of mind bending to realize like each cell in itself is a tiny little organism doing its own thing in a way.
3: That's right. That's exactly right. And they, um, and and, and they can be. I mean. Even in a collection of cells that theoretically should all be the same, like a cell culture dish, where all of this, which is a completely artificial environment, but all the cells theoretically have the same exposure to oxygen, they all have the same access to nutrients. Um, they should be as close to identical as cells could be. I mean, you you could imagine that would be the case. And yet, if you look at those cells individually, you can see that that's not true. If if again, if nothing else they are at different stages for instance of cell, of the of the cell cycle of mitosis and so or they could be and so um if you look at how they respond to things they will respond differently so the population may respond to a stimulus in a certain way but that doesn't mean that every cell in that population is responding in the same way
0: and something else that you mentioned um that you're kind of looking forward to in science is that you know, we were talking about kind of how different cells are different things, and they're doing different things. But you also talked about differences inside a cell. So you talked about the spatial transcriptomes, spatial transcriptomics. And I was wondering if you could start by explaining what that is, because to me, it sounds like a very uh, convoluted form of geometry, which I'm sure is not remotely true.
3: It kind of is true, actually. So Yes. i started I, I said before earlier that that much of the history of molecular biology was done with these bulk methods um and so again, that's you know sort of it's like um it's uh combining all the cells in a tissue and looking at them and mass so with a single cell method, you basically just disaggregate those tissues and say um how is each cell or at least each cell that you're capable of beha- uh, of analyzing um how do they behave? But the problem with that is that, um, cells in the body really don't act like cells in a tissue culture dish. They are in three dimensions. They have different levels of exposures to stimuli, like, you know, they're, they're closer or farther from the blood supply, for instance. Um, they experience different things. So, um, where they are in the tissue actually matters, and disaggregating cells to look at them using these single cell methods, which again are incredibly powerful, um, you lose that spatial information. So what a lot of researchers are doing is moving from this sort of single cell these single cell methods. I mean, they're still using these methods, but now they're trying to they're trying to look at single cell methods while retaining the spatial coordinates where those cells were in the tissue that they came from so that you can then begin to ask questions like how do the cells suppose you were studying a cancer a tissue uh, a, a tissue with a tumor you could begin to ask questions like how do cells at the periphery of the tumor that is um which are abutting the the normal tissue how do those differ from cells deeper within the tumor or how do cells deeper within the normal tissue, differ from those right next to the cancer? Or um, are immune cells... Um, like, what can we say about the immune cells that are infilt- infiltrating the tumor versus immune cells that are not?
0: So, yeah, this when you talk about spatial transcriptomics and kind of the idea of where a cell is in space in terms of structure, it makes me think a lot about, you know, when people open their biology textbooks, which if you're like me and you still lovingly keep your college biology textbooks, which I do, (laughs) you will see diagrams of cells. Like you'll see a map of a cell with the organelles all placed in specific places. So you have your Golgi apparatus here and your nucleus there and your endoplasmic reticulum. And you actually described it to me as kind of the cell as a sort of not quite all the way filled water balloon. (laughs) Kind of It looks squishy. And I was wondering as we learn more about spatial transcriptomics how much of that is true how much do we know kind of about the geography of a cell
3: so that's a really good question and um the interesting thing is so so i should i should back up just a second and say spatial methods can work can provide either cellular level detail like this cell has this behavior but there are also spatial methods that will provide like some subcellular detail like not only which cell is expressing which gene but where in the cell is this gene expressed and that um really can begin to address the kinds of questions you're asking but i mean as in most things in biology textbooks it's probably partially true uh obviously the cell doesn't really look like it looks like in a biology textbook um what i've been lied to <laughs> but but obviously um obviously um the basic principles are probably the same certainly what we're learning what 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 space what these kinds of spatial methods for instance can teach us though is things like um you know for instance you could imagine doing an experiment where you um you could imagine doing an experiment for instance where you look at the position of you look at gene expression in cells over time. So, like, a time series. And then you can begin, and you could begin to see that, like, you know, cells are not static. They're not all the same. They're also not static. So, they're changing. uh They're, they're changing over time. They're changing during development. Um, so, um, and, you know, the, the proteins that they express at different times are different. Uh, they communicate in different ways over time. Um, they're dynamic, uh, creatures, if you will. And so, um, the uh, d- diagrams that you see in your biology textbooks are are sort of basically right. They're a good approximation often. But um, as is the case with most things in science, the nuances are, uh, there are a lot more nuance. They, there's a lot of detail that gets kind of lost that these kinds of techniques, re- the, their developers hope will eventually be able to um, tease those kinds of details apart.
0: And what? do we hope we can do with that? I mean, I, I see, to me, I'm going, oh my goodness, this is completely rewriting how I think about cells and how I visualize cells and also tissues. But, you know, we don't really do a lot of just straight pure science just for understanding tissues. What, what do we hope to kind of get out of this?
3: Um, well, obviously, people have different, I mean, People are hoping to find uh, um i mean people go into these experiments for different for different purposes, but generally speaking what you what you get out of them is a really very sophisticated, very nuanced, and really very complicated view of the inner lives of cells and um for example when you when you do these kinds of experiments, you can discover You could discover new kinds of cells that you may, you know, like new types of neurons, for instance, that you never knew were there. Um, New sort of intermediate stages of development that you never knew were there. New genes involved in processes that you never knew were involved, Um, and and of course, all of that ultimately potentially suggests new points of intervention in the event of disease. You know, like. If you now know that a gene is involved in a process and that that process is somehow disrupted in a disease, that gene gives you a new target, potentially, to, um, to try and combat that disease.
0: Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being here. And I plan, personally, to keep an eye out for more omics, because I just love how they're kind of rewriting what we know about the body.
3: Well, there's plenty of research to take a look at, so uh, just keep watching BioArchive.
0: If you want to learn more about Jeffrey Perkel and his work, we've got information about him on our website. We often think of studies of the past, from dinosaurs to ancient peoples, as relatively free from modern social controversy. Bones are bones, right? They're like bones. But what we've learned over the past few years is that that simply isn't true. Humans of the past have modern descendants, people who care about what happens to their ancestors. And animal finds of the past are often found in places where people have been historically excluded from the science taking place on their land. What does the future of these studies look like? We're here with Riley Black. She's a freelance paleontology writer and author of books, including Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. Welcome, Riley!
4: Oh, so glad to be here. Thank you for having me on.
0: So first, I wanted to talk about the growing recognition that Indigenous inclusion is necessary in paleontology, and not just for human remains, but because many fossil finds are on ancestral lands. And I was kind of wondering, how has that recognition impacted the field?
4: Right. So right now we're in this moment where I feel like paleontology is dealing with a lot of ethical issues that have always been there but have been ignored or not recognized in the past, and now they're really sort of fomenting to the forefront. Uh, to give you an example, when I was out in the field this past summer, I was working in the Uinta Basin, the Uinta Basin in eastern Utah. And this is adjacent to the uh, Ute Reservation. And the same fossil beds that we were working in continued onto the Ute Reservation where nobody has done paleontological fieldwork. And that has to do with respecting the uh, beliefs and perception of that uh, culture about fossils, what they are, what should be done with them. And I feel like in the past, paleontologists would have this extractive mindset because the science is almost extractive by its nature you go somewhere you find fossils you take them out you bring them back to a museum but now there's a greater recognition that people have ties to these fossils that these inform people's beliefs about who they are and their past and their culture and we can't just basically smash and grab just because something looks shiny or it looks pretty that this really has to be considered and it's not just forming partnerships but a lot of repair work has to be done about the damage that's been done like over a century's worth of this sort of idea of, you know, bring them back petrified that we're just going out to find whatever fossils, bring them back, not really pay attention to the people who live in these places. And that's very much starting to change.
0: You know, it's really, I really like that you pointed out that paleontology is extractive by nature. You take out the fossil, you bring it somewhere else and you study it. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting how that's kind of impacted the mindset of the field. And I found it especially interesting that um, before we are talking now, you mentioned that this isn't just for human finds. It's also for dinosaur finds, Um, you know, finds that, you know, of animals that existed long before any humans were around. Why is it still important to kind of think about indigenous inclusion when working with, you know, fossils that are millions of years old.
4: Right. It's something where we might not feel this connection to a dinosaur fossil or a fossil mammal or a trilobite or something like that in an emotional level, because the way, especially in our Westernized society, that we're brought up to think of these things as like scientific objects, that they tell us about deep time and the past, and they provide us some context, but they're not so much part of like our personal background. We don't have attachments to them. They're not important necessarily to where we feel we came from. It's just neat stuff. But that isn't the way it is for everybody. And in many other cultures and many other nations, in fact— uh, and this doesn't have to do only with indigenous communities, but also just nations around the world. Like the controversies about blood amber from Myanmar or fossils that have been exported illegally out of South America and uh, places like Brazil. That these are part of people's backgrounds, their history, their natural history heritage. That even if there weren't, you know, if it's not tied directly to our direct ancestors or directly informs what we think of as human history, it still is part of that country part of that culture people have beliefs and ideas about these things and i feel like science has traditionally gone and says well those 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 things don't matter this is scientific context only like the main value of these fossils is scientific because we say so and a lot of people have said no, there's actually different perspectives on this. These things matter to people beyond just, you know, a technical paper that might come out in, you know, science, you know, year after discovery, that these things go much deeper than I think our sort of colonialism, colonialist view of, of science and how it operates is.
0: Well, and I also think the kind of colonial mindset also kind of contributes a sense of paternalism, right? Like, often you take Mm -hmm. the fossils away because, you know, you, the people in this country, cannot possibly have the expertise to study them yourselves.
2: Absolutely,
4: yes. And that's a huge problem right now in places like Myanmar, where, you know, there's been the military coup. A lot of the amber that's come out of the country um, over the past number of years has been um, basically exported out of the country and sold on the black market. And, you know, even as paleontologists are bring up like, yeah, this is a huge ethical problem that we may be inadvertently funding genocide if we're buying these fossils, that the money then goes back to these government bodies that are committing these humanitarian atrocities. We can't do that. And part of the counter argument, which I don't agree with, but people are certainly making it, is that, well, there's no institution sort of within the country that can adequately house and study these things so we had better hold on to them for safekeeping and study and not really working like well how do we do this in an ethical and responsible way that maintains this connection to where the fossils are from instead they get scattered all over the place and this is something that I feel there's a lot of argument about it still there's a lot of back and forth and all these different sort of traditions of how fossils are acquired without thinking about well what does this mean for the people who live in and around the places where these fossils are from. And I wish that there were, you know, sort of a great summation of like the way forward or how do we resolve this? But it's really like this first step is the step of actually having these arguments out in the open. And we're still very much in the middle of that.
0: And I was wondering, are there any changes that are being made now that maybe some scientists are making to try and kind of deal with these ethical issues?
4: Yes, there are some studies that have been coming out or soon will come out about uh, what's called parachute science. So basically, researchers in the US or in England are basically these traditionally very well funded um, places going to other countries, extracting the fossils and bring them out. And this really, like, there is the data there that this is actually happening. It's not just a matter of somebody saying, like, I have this impression that this is bad, but like, we actually have the receipts. For this. And that's part of this, I was convincing people like this is real and that this is a problem. Um, the Society for Vertebrate Paleontology came out with a statement uh, about blood amber specifically saying that we don't want to support publication of any of these fossils that have been collected or sold. Uh, within basically since the time that the genocide and humanitarian atrocities have have started. And for some that goes too far, for some that doesn't go far enough. But people are starting to say like, hey, if you have fossils that are basically illegally acquired or exported or came from the black market or basically have a huge ethical red flag on them, that we shouldn't be publishing this and promoting them and having people build their careers off of this, that we can't do this anymore. So even though those steps are like very, very initial, it's not enough they are starting to come into place. And at least I feel like in the next generation of researchers in particular, it's much more in their mindset than the sort of traditional, um, yeah, parachute science model where we just go wherever. And if a fossil is important, it's important regardless of how it was acquired.
0: Yeah. And I think that actually leads in well to kind of, there's been more discussion of the next generation of, you know, paleontologists, archaeologists, um, in terms of like the scientific pipeline and diversity within the scientific pipeline, um, you know it's there's this idea that you know all paleontologists are like Jurassic Park and they're all white guys. Um, and so I was wondering what kind of conversations are people having about diversity in the paleontology space?
4: I think it's a really fraught conversation because I feel like a lot of people are either Sort of signed on to to the idea, which I think is a reality, that we have a big diversity problem. The fact that there are almost no black researchers, that there are very few Hispanic researchers, that in terms of cultural and ethnic and racial and gender diversity, that we see the same pattern that we see in many other sciences, where at low levels, so at the volunteer or the student level, the diversity is a little bit better. But as you go further along that academic pipeline through you know, collections managers and curators and professors, that becomes more and more male and more and more white as, as you go. And just trying to get people to recognize that this is a reality and this is a problem has been a bit of a struggle. And I think that's where the conversation is still simmering is that I feel like younger people who want to get into a field, who want to make a difference – in this are struggling to find a place to find support in this Um, and it's still very much like folks who've maintained the same positions basically have tenure or have these basically lifetime appointments and then they become an emeritus or what have you they're still very much in these institutions kind of taking up that space and they're very much reluctant to give it up. And it seems like a lot of what younger people are talking about and that we want this diversity that's important for science, it's important for how we think and how we conduct the science, uh, they're hostile to it. It's, it feels threatening to them. It's one of those things where they feel fragile enough that like, now they feel attacked. So I think we're still very much in that early part of the conversation where we're trying to highlight this. We're trying to bring it to the forefront and say we need this diversity to exist to even just not only conduct the science ethically, but to understand more about the nature that we want to understand, that if it's all coming from one cultural perspective, it's really a blinkered sort of view of what nature is, and just getting people to recognize that, I think is where we're still very much at, having those arguments and trying to convince people that there is a culture of science, there's a perspective that comes from your background when you do science that informs what you see and how you do what you do. So really, everybody should take like philosophy or sociology of science class as part of their science training would be a huge help at this point.
0: I was So I was actually wondering, what do you think that means for kind of the future? Like, what, what does the future of fossil hunting kind of, what would you like it to look like?
4: That's a big question. I'm glad that you asked. It's one of those things where they definitely gave me a moment of pause to be like, okay, what would like the ideal look like? To me, I think it would involve a lot more conversation. Like, let's just for now restrict the conversation to, let's say, like the Western United States, where either traditionally or through reservations, there is a large indigenous presence on the land that has always been there. And we're kind of coming in. I would like there to be more conversations between paleontologists, even if they're technically on federal land, if they're not on a reservation, still try and repair and form these relationships with communities that are there, that have been there. They probably know a lot of things that we just simply don't and try and you know bring non-scientists and their perspectives into how we do what we do. And thinking a little bit more carefully about like, okay, what are we doing on the back end of this? Like, We're still very much in a science that does require that we go out, we find fossils, we you know, wrap them in plaster, we bring them back to a museum for study. But what happens after that? Who do we acknowledge? In the paper, who do we involve in the science? Are we giving something back to the community? Are we even doing repairs for some of the damage that we might do to the strata or to the ecosystems in that area by digging something up? I feel like paleontology is so far behind in terms of considering these forms of ethics. Like The laundry list of what I'd like to see is probably relatively long. But even just a consideration of these fossils, these remnants of ancient life matter to people beyond the scientists themselves and that we have a responsibility and obligation to involve those communities and to also like hear from them about what they would like to see i feel like if i answer this question too specifically it's yet another you know ostensibly middle class white person telling other communities what they should want i think really like being able to open these dialogues and get that input about what is important to a particular community in their particular place. And some of them might not want to be involved with paleontology. And some might say, like, this is amazing. We would actually love our, you know, um, our students and our young people to get involved with this and learn and become trained. And it you know, can vary so much from culture to culture and place to place. And that's why it's important not to have necessarily a blanket rule, but start to have these conversations and begin this repair that very much needs to be done.
0: Well, Riley, thank you so much. It's so useful to kind of keep in mind that bones and the study of them are still alive.
4: (laughs) Very much. Yes, absolutely.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Riley Black, we've got more information about her and her work on our website. Finally, look, even looking forward, as we've seen, can be kind of depressing, which is why it's sometimes fun to look up to space. Which is why we're finishing our look ahead with Lisa Grossman, the astronomy writer at Science News Magazine. There's only one rule for this section. No space cowboy billionaires. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, First, we deliberately scheduled this interview to happen right after the decadal survey came out. Um, So we're recording this in November. um, And the decadal survey has just happened. And I was wondering if you could talk about what that is and why it matters.
5: Absolutely. So every 10 years, the National Academy of Sciences commissions a report from the astronomy community of on their priorities, scientific priorities for the next 10 years. And this report matters because it ends up, uh, what, what the astronomy community suggests as like, these are the things we want to do ends up having a lot of implications for what gets funded over the next 10 years. So the last two, I think, um, telescopes that were named as the top priority were the James Webb space telescope, which was top priority in the 2000 and 2010, um, decadal surveys because it's taken that long. We'll talk about that later. Uh, and also the, what's now called the Nancy Grace Roman space telescope, um, which is under development now and will launch sometime in the future. And so uh, this year's was delayed by the pandemic and everybody, you know, it was um, a lot of work over a lot of Zoom calls over many, many hours for a lot of astronomers to get it out. Um, but they just released it last week and it lays out a really interesting um View of what we should be doing next in space. And and one of the interesting things about it is that they want to change the way that we approach and and develop um, big space observatories going forward so that. Things can happen kind of in tandem, and and not have to put all of our astronomy eggs in one basket, and sh- end up having one big massive project that must launch and must succeed. The way that we are the, the situation we're sort of in with the James Webb Space Telescope.
0: So you mentioned it's kind of a a way of not keeping all of our space eggs in one basket. Um, is this like a series of space telescopes? And I also wanted to ask, you know, why telescopes? Why not like dudes in space or rovers in space? Um, Why why more telescopes?
5: That's down to the way that NASA is organized. So NASA has different divisions that govern astronomy and planetary science and human space flight. So the planetary science decadal survey is also ongoing now and um, should also be coming out sometime soon. I don't know exactly when. It could be early next year um, or early 2022, but that's where... A lot of the the rovers and the other planetary spacecraft will be discussed so the the reason that this one is a lot of telescopes is because that's a lot of what the the astrophysics decadal survey is is concerned with that's how you that's how you observe the sky
0: and I also wanted to ask in particular about one telescope, telescope that was a big deal in the last decadal survey oh. um, and it's the James Webb Space Telescope, which by the time this podcast airs, will be on its way to space and hopefully will be unfolding correctly, and I do mean unfolding, literally, because it is basically an origami telescope. And I was wondering what are scientists hoping to see with it? It sees primarily in infrared, right? That's
5: right, yeah. So the James Webb Space Telescope was dreamed up as the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, which launched in the early 90s and is still going, which was a surprise. Um, And Hubble looks mostly in the optical and ultraviolet parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So optical is stuff we can see with our eyes. That's part of why those pictures from Hubble are so amazing. And, um, but the, because the universe is expanding, light that was emitted by objects that are farther away or further back in time has gotten, uh, stretched by the expansion of the universe, which means that it's gotten more red, longer wavelengths are more red. We call this red shifting, Um, so in order to see further back in time than Hubble can see, you need to look in redder wavelengths and that takes you to the infrared. So when James Webb was or the telescope that became James Webb, um, was first being conceived of, astronomers already knew that they wanted to see infrared light so that they could see further back in time than Hubble can see and maybe see the first galaxies and maybe the first stars turning on. And that idea became even more. Um, compelling when Hubble started looking as far back into into deep space and history as it can look. And the galaxies were looking different than what we had expected. They were more well-developed at earlier times than theory predicted they should be. Um, so we're really excited with James Webb to see what the, what the even earlier galaxies looked like. And that will give us some idea of how they came together and how they grew into what they are now, how they interact with black holes, how galaxies and black holes grow together and influence each other. Um, that's Those are some of the major questions that James Webb will address. I um,
0: just the, uh, love the idea of seeing the first stars turn on. That's amazing.
5: I think that's a stretch. That's a, like a reach goal, but it might be possible depending on how early and how big those stars were, which is really cool.
0: And and I did other talk- thing
5: wait well oh. can, can I talk about one more thing of course James Webb so the other cool, exciting thing that James Webb is going to do is um or of uh, many things so he's going to do lots of things, but one of the other major things uh is to probe the atmospheres of exoplanets and figure out what gases they contain, um which is something when the telescope was first being designed wasn't even on anybody's radar, so it's it's very cool that now we can use this. It's nice to have like a kind of an all-purpose observatory like this where new scientific questions can emerge while you're using it um, or while you're designing it. And it's going to be really actually very well suited to that. We already have a list of planets that they want to look at first. Um, Most of them are not anything like Earth. And that was something that the decadal survey brought up was we're going to have James Webb. It's going to teach us how to make these observations. The next thing should look for the actual habitable rocky exoplanets that we might recognize as something like where we live.
0: That's really cool. It's also kind of the bright side to the fact that the James Webb telescope was delayed by more than a decade. (laughs) You know, we had (laughs) time to develop cool new stuff for it.
5: (laughs) Even the past couple years, there have been since 2018, there were a couple more last minute delays. And one of the exoplanet scientists that I spoke to for a story I wrote for science news about it said that was the best thing that could have happened for the exoplanet community because it gave them time to pick out specifically which planets they wanted to look at first which surprised me
0: so I also wanted to ask about the telescope is named James Webb um because it's named after a dude named James Webb and I was wondering there is has been some controversy over that and I was wondering if you could talk about why? I will admit I do not know who James Webb is or was. I know there's a space telescope called him.
5: <laughs> so James Webb was the administrator of NASA during the uh, sorry during the Apollo era, um, and he was instrumental in making sure that there was still science in the send humans to the moon plan, which is important and good, and I think that's part of why uh, when in 2002 when they named the telescope that would be built and is launching this year. Now, almost 20 years later. Um, that's why they named it after him because he was so important in keeping science at the forefront of the Apollo era, which could have just been about boots on the ground and dudes on the moon. Um, but he was also a government bureaucrat at a time when, um, McCarthyism was happening, and there was a period called the Lavender Scare, where um, the government was firing gay people for being gay, gay and lesbian people. And um, there are questions and allegations about whether James Webb was himself involved in persecuting gay and lesbian people in the 50s and 60s when he was working for the government, which was doing that. Um, There was a petition signed by a great number of astronomers asking NASA to look into this and um consider renaming the telescope after um they didn't they didn't specify who but just you know somebody else <laughs> someone who who there are not these questions about um, maybe a more recognizable name, but like they they really didn't suggest anything specific. they were just like, this is uncomfortable in twenty twenty one to be continuing to use you know, to, to honor people who were probably involved in this kind of government persecution of gay people and we shouldn't do it. Um, so that was the situation until a couple, couple weeks ago now. So I guess months ago when this airs, um, and NASA did hire independent investigators to look into this and historians and to see if there was any evidence that James Webb was personally involved in persecuting gay people. Um, and they said that the NASA ministry made a statement that said they didn't find anything and they weren't going to change the name, but there has been no report released, uh, at least as of now, um, detailing like what, what even they looked at and, and how they came to that conclusion. So people are still not really satisfied with that response, and I think it's still going.
0: Well, I did also want to talk about a different mission, which is not called James Webb. It's called Lucy, and it's going to asteroids near Jupiter. And I was wondering if you could talk about what it's doing there and why we care about asteroids and hopefully not for like future dystopian asteroid belt mining operations.
5: No, yeah. So we care about asteroids because they are some of the oldest and most pristine objects in the solar system. So they are time capsules of what the earliest things that eventually glommed together to become rocky planets were like uh what they were made of how their chemistry worked whether they were um altered by water even on you know when they were not that big yet whether they collided with each other and got bigger that way or um if they were built up by like just self-gravity and kind of pebbles sticking together so they're they're fossils of the early solar system um In kind of a, I mean, it's metaphorical, but it's also kind of literally true. So the Lucy mission is sending a single spacecraft to visit, I think, seven different asteroids or eight, seven asteroids that are in these two groups that are actually kind of far away from Jupiter, but they share an orbit around the sun with Jupiter. They're called the Trojans. And they're in these special gravitational zones where Jupiter's gravity and the sun's gravity Kind of cancel each other out so you can get stuff collecting there so there's a lot of asteroids that just hang out in the same kind of area and they might not have been born there they might be um, collected from other parts of the solar system so it's a good way to see a lot of diverse asteroids in a single go um yeah
0: I really love the idea of asteroids as pristine because I always kind of saw asteroid belts I think it's the way they're drawn is I always kind of thought of them as just kind of like space dirt. They are dirty. (laughs) 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 But they're
5: they're probably things like (laughs) bubble piles and like yeah.
0: (laughs) But they're clean dirt. <laughs> they' old dirt, dirt. <laughs>
5: <laughs> they're old dirt that has not been I think when you when you talk about like a planetary pristineness, it just means that it hasn't been heated up enough that the minerals in it have been baked and and chemically processed, so a lot of the stuff on Earth is not what it started as because we have this hot core, we have a lot of volcanism, we have tectonics, there's a lot of like churning and resurfacing and a lot of activity going on with Earth, so the rocks that you find on the surface of Earth are almost entirely different from the rocks that earth formed from but that's not true with asteroids the rocks you find on asteroids are pretty similar to the very you know when when that asteroid like solidified as a single entity whenever that was which we can find out um that's what it is now so that's why they're interesting to study
0: well lisa thank you so much for being here hearing about cool stuff in space always makes the future seem a little brighter and we get to talk about space dirt Clean space (laughs) dirt. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Thanks, Bethany. If you'd like to learn more about Lisa Grossman and her work, we've got links on our website. You'll know where that is by now. Say it with me. Scienceforthepeople.ca. The website has more. There's links to subscribe if you want to hear more awesome science conversations. There's links to follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Tell us what you like or don't like about the show. And there's also a link to our Patreon page, where you can help us out if you are so inclined with a monthly donation. The monthly donation helps support the podcasters who work so hard to bring you this show, and we so appreciate it. Thanks for listening, Happy New Year, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People.
1: Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders.